as we just uh, prayed with Jason, that we would be changed by being under the word tonight, and also as we just sang it, that these ancient words would change us. I'm excited about bringing uh, the word tonight, really excited about Ian's message next week, look forward to that. I was wanting to wear my crush evil hat tonight, but I refrained. I didn't want to mess up my hair, so... But we come to the second half of Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 9 through 20. We're going to see all the work that Nehemiah has been doing, kind of, if you will, behind the scenes. And they're going to start coming together into tangible reality. That is, all of Nehemiah's prayers, his passion, his fasting, his waiting, his planning, his appealing have had result. He has prayed in accordance with God's will, his word. God has heard him and has responded. So as we jump into this passage, we're going to find that Nehemiah is traveling with an animal underneath him an army escort around him, letters from the king in his hand, and building materials in tow. Nehemiah's spiritual preparations have turned into tangible realities. So we're going to split our study today into four sections. The first one is implementation. So in verses 9 through 10, Nehemiah begins the work that will result in the safety and the honor and the glory to reestablish God's chosen city, His chosen people. Secondly, in verses 11 through 16, we're going to see Nehemiah goes on this nighttime reconnaissance mission by the full moon to practically investigate what's really going on here. Remember, this is the first time he's been in the city of his ancestors. He would have been born in Persia. He's made a two to three month journey to get here. He gets the lay of the land. He's seen some opposition. So he goes on a nighttime reconnaissance mission to see, man, I've put my hands to this plow. What am I actually to be doing? The third section, verses 17 through 18, will title Invitation. It's here where Nehemiah invites the spiritual leaders of Jerusalem as well as the workers to join him in the work of rebuilding the kingdom. Remember, church, that this building of the the walls is step one. It covers the first half of the book. We often think of Nehemiah as building walls, but that's not the only thing that Nehemiah was building. As we continue, we'll see the rest of Nehemiah's vision. In chapter 6, it says, the Lord had put on my heart to begin to organize families by genealogies. So it was also in a start, not just to build walls, but to build community. And so he starts organizing family groups together, preparing them and readying them, because it takes everyone or as we say around here, 
we desire for this vine and branch to be in every member ministry. We're all in. So Nehemiah organizes family groups. He calls on gifts. He starts reinstituting the priority of God's word. Ezra comes in and reads it out loud. Nehemiah is requiring obedience and encouraging obedience to God's laws. He he also wants to develop the right use of spiritual offices. The priests have kind of been lobbying for themselves. They've been about their own kingdom. It's time to be about God's kingdom. So these are the things that Nehemiah is building. And we're going to, this section here, verses 17 and 18, this is kind of the culmination of this section. And we're going to spend most of our time there. And then the last section, verses 19 through 20, we titled Determination. And so there's opposition. We mentioned this last week. And in the face of opposition, Nehemiah stands as a stalwart example of remaining faithful to the work of building what God has called him to build in the face of opposition. So those are the four sections. Father, as we head in to study your word, I pray that you would communicate to us tonight what you would want to be communicated. I recognize that my personality and even teaching style affects that. But that even you would take this bent cup and pour out to us what you would have for us. We trust that you have sovereignly orchestrated who I am, as well as who these friends are who are before me, and you will speak and we will hear because you have allowed us to do so. And that regardless of how I speak, if you are not quickening us, to hear and receive your word, it goes nowhere. So may we receive, may all of us receive your word tonight in faith and joy. That's why we're here. And thank you for using all of us. For allowing us and for inviting all of us, to be part of your kingdom work. To be part of not just church, but this church, this family. We're thankful and we express it and we open ourselves to receiving what you have for us because of Christ. Amen. So last week we saw that Nehemiah's fervency was demonstrated through his persevering obedience, his spiritual preparation, and physical activation of all of his gifts, his resources, even his position to see the will of God accomplished. And then, if you remember, we took that that principle and we applied it by way of application to ourselves, and we realized that we are also invited participants. That God is inviting us to build his kingdom. And that we demonstrate fervency for his will, like Nehemiah, by long obedience, by spiritual preparation, and physical activation of our gifts and resources and abilities. 
So that's where we were last week. This section today continues, and also like Nehemiah, we will see that all of our planning and our teaching and our listening and our learning and our waiting and our appealing earnestly done, and that's important. All this that we're doing, why we're here listening, taking notes, working as friends and families and the young adults getting together, single people inviting families over and families inviting singles over, growing to be a cohesive family together. All of this earnestly done in efforts must, it must result in tangible realities. In other words, this is our thesis for tonight. This is the main point where all other points should lead us, if I do my job, is this. Our spiritual preparations that we talked about last week will turn into tangible realities. In other words, Christ's kingdom isn't just something we come and talk about and something way off there in the future, although it is, and it's going to be great. It's also something that's present. It's right now. When Christ teaches us to pray, what does He teach us to pray? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, now, on earth as it is in heaven. And our job, our, our, our gift is to be able to bring those things together. Our spiritual preparations will turn into tangible realities. Let's jump into this first section in Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 9. Nehemiah says this. So this is after he goes to the king, Artaxerxes, if you remember, asked three questions. Why are you troubled? What do you need? How long will you be gone? Nehemiah answers his questions. He loads them up with supplies, gives them letters. Nehemiah is on his way. Then verse 9, Nehemiah records this. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent me with officers of the army and horsemen. So Nehemiah and his entourage make it across this river. We know by history that this river is the river Euphrates. It actually served as a dividing line between two previously separate kingdoms, but now they're both overseen by Persia. But Artaxerxes put a governor over charge of this other region, the other side of the river. And so when Nehemiah crosses over with his entourage, they didn't have email. This guy doesn't know he's coming. And so Nehemiah has to introduce himself and why he's here. He hands him letters from the king. It's interesting here to note that Nehemiah, it says, had an escort that he by faith received from the king. So the king offers him an escort. These army guys will go with you to keep you safe. And Nehemiah receives that by faith. And I say it's interesting because years previous, Ezra was also offered an entourage to go with him. And by faith, he said, no, I don't want that. God is our protector. He will take care of us. And I say that to say that here's two leaders That both in faith, one accepts an entourage, 
protection from the army and one doesn't accept an entourage in faith by the army. It's good for us to remember that not all things have to be done the same. And as we consider what it looks like for vine and branch to build the kingdom, it ought not to turn into pride. Well, we do it this way. Well, our way is better than your way. Guys, God's going to call us to do certain things as a group of body that we are uniquely fit to do. And that cannot turn into pride. We cannot allow that to turn into a measuring stick by which we measure what other people are doing for the kingdom. Let's let that run deep into our hearts and minds. So when we're excited about the kingdom, it not ought to be because we're special. It's because we serve a special God and He's working all over the world. So there is a lesson buried for us here and may it help to keep us humble. That's a freebie, okay? But a really good introduction. Nehemiah crosses the Euphrates and starts into this region. He comes to the king's designate, a governor, and he hands over these letters from the king validating his travel and his purposes in going to Jerusalem. So after months of anticipation and prayer and planning, Nehemiah is moving from that prayer and planning to implementation. And as Nehemiah implements God's plans, he is literally standing on the edge of fulfilling prophecy from the likes of Isaiah and Jeremiah, those who would have spoken to his great grandparents' generation. And I can't help but wonder while I was preparing if Nehemiah had any inkling at all that 2,500 years later that a group of people would be sitting in a building pondering his words and looking to see what it is that God would have for them from his words. Isn't that amazing to think about? If he did have any thought in that direction and how long his words would last, he doesn't, he doesn't account for it in his recordings. He doesn't ponder the reality. It's of generations, generational, generations, generationals go therefore throughout the rest of... He has no, no, rec, no idea of how far what he's doing will carry. He simply is going to be obedient to the word of the Lord. But here we are, 2,500 years later, looking at his letter, responding in our own way to God's invitation to build his kingdom. Now now pause and ask us, do we have any idea how far our obedience to the Lord will go. If you get time this week, ponder that. Think about that. Be encouraged by that. But whether Nehemiah understood the significance or the lasting impact his actions would have, Nehemiah's persevering obedience, his spiritual preparation 
resulted in tangible realities. With ripple effects we still feel today. That's verse 9. And look, look what happens next in verse 10. But when Sanballat the Hornite and Tobiah the Ammonite, the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. We're going to talk about this more in section 4 because these two dudes come back up again. Okay, But to suffice to say right now for this section, we just want to say this. When we see progress, you can count on opposition. Here's a spiritual principle that we should arm ourselves with. You start moving forward, somebody's going to try to knock you backwards. You start making strides spiritually forward, the evil one will take offense and want to move you backwards. I've talked with several of you in the last few weeks that are really moving towards Christ. And you're really discouraged that you're facing great opposition. And you're wondering if God is really for you. And if he's for me, why wouldn't he rescue me from this? Hear me, he is rescuing you. He is for you. And he is going to help you move past these evil ones' efforts to knock you backwards. Trust him and keep moving forward. It's true. When you start moving forward, spirit, look, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities. When you start moving forward towards Christ, there is an enemy army who wants to move you backwards. Arm yourself with that reality. Cling to Christ. He will carry you through. We're going to see this in a minute. What he starts, he finishes. If I was of the charismatic type, I'd be really losing control right now. When you see progress, look for opposition. Here recently, um, Mary and I have started to take on this mindset. A couple times we've hit some really hard patches here, and we're not... We're not communicating correctly. Something's not happening. And I have thought in my mind, this is not just for us. This is spiritual pushing back, and we need to learn because other people are going to need what we're getting right now. But if I make this about Mary and I alone, I'm going to miss the point. And it's true, church. We've hit two things in specific I can think about, and it wasn't days after We were helping people think through the same very thing we were struggling through. Expect opposition. It's coming, but see it for what it is. Don't turn it inward on your spouse or your siblings or your coworkers. It's not what it's about. Trust the Lord. He's rescuing us. Amen? This next version, this next section is titled Reconnaissance versus 11 through 16, Nehemiah sets out on this secret reconnaissance mission 
to get a hold of the lay of the land and all the repairs to be made. It's likely, we don't know this for sure, but it's likely because of the but the opposition that he faced the minute he got across the border from Sanballat and Tobiah that he realizes, one, he gets there, he's three days not doing anything, and then he's like, I better do this at night. So he decides to undertake his exploration under night in a full moon. Verse 11. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night and a few men with me. And I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. Now, can you imagine having this plan and then showing up and seeing the condition of Jerusalem and be like, um, maybe not. Maybe I heard wrong. Right? There was no animal with me except for or but the one in which I rode. I went out by night to the valley gate, to the dragon spring, and to the dung gate. And I expected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down, and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went out to the fountain gate, and to the king's pool. But there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. There's lots of rubble and debris. Verse 15, Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall. And I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Now we know from what he just described that he doesn't survey all the walls nor all the gates. But we know from the sections that he names that he is actually inspecting the sections that were forefront, that in battle they would have taken the biggest hit. The other side wasn't so accessible. He's expecting this part where successful breaches had been mounted and the most damages, the most damages were made, were done. And what amazes me as a construction guy is that when he comes back, he is not overwhelmed. That he's not pining and hand-wringing. I mean, you think about this. The wall is two and a half miles long. Seven to eleven feet thick. Thirty-seven feet tall. Had thirty-four towers. And he's got a hope and maybe some volunteers. I've thought to myself over and over, because I can tend to get overwhelmed pretty readily with details like this. How did he not get discouraged? Where did he get his fortitude? I want to lead like that. How does he do that with such poise and confidence? Here's how. Nehemiah was fervent about God's will. He knows His Word, and he knows that this is God's work. It's God's work. He's absolutely convinced. Look at what he writes later in Nehemiah chapter 6, verse 14 through 16. First, he's still perturbed with Tobiah and Sanballat. 
I thought this was funny enough to include it. He doesn't like the opposition these guys faced, so he includes this in his prayers. He says, Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, O my God, according to these things that they did, and also the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Yule, in 52 days. And when all of our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of God. Nehemiah knew this is God's work, not mine. Why was Nehemiah not overwhelmed? This is God's work. And what he starts, he finishes. What he promises, he will do. And so he presents this audacious plan to a bunch of amateurs. This takes us to the next section, invitation, verses 17 and 18. We come to the crucial verse in our study. Nehemiah moves from private plan to public invitation. And then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in, and how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem, that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, Let us rise up and build. And so they strengthened their hands for the good work. Again, this is the key passage in chapter 2. Everything in this chapter leads up to verses 17 and 18. And Nehemiah does four things in this passage. He poses the problem. Then he proposes a remedy. He presents the reason they should have confidence. And then he provides the evidence. By the way, if you're ever into alliteration, which I'm typically not, but P's are really easy. I don't know what that is, okay? So just that's another freebie. He poses the problem, proposes the remedy, he presents the reason, and then he provides evidence. So he proposes this problem. He says, See, you see our trouble. You see it. Our city is in ruins. Our gates are burned. In, in chapter 1, verse 3, we saw that he starts the book, his, his letter off, by labeling their condition a great trouble and shame. Its gates are destroyed by fire. In chapter 2, verse 3, when he's talking to King Artaxerxes, he says, The city of my father's graves lies in ruins, and its gates have been destroyed by fire. And Nehemiah says to the people, I am not telling you something you don't know. You see it. We're in shame, disgrace, derision. We're vulnerable. We're unsafe. You see the trouble we're in. Our city is in ruins. Our gates have been burned. Now, during this 
his recon mission that we just talked about in verses 11 through 16, he actually evaluates four of the seven gates. Gates burned, gates, gates. What's all this about the gates? Anytime, right, we see repetition, we want to pay attention to that. Gates this, gates are burned. What, what is this about the gates? Well, gates were where men met to discuss town business. If you remember in Proverbs, a wife will exalt her husband in the gates. What, what does that mean? This is a guy, he's well-known, he's respected in the community. Where's the community exemplified? The community is exemplified at the gates. It's where commerce takes place. It's where, it's where people meet to talk town business and politics and to share ideas. It represented the wisdom and the prosperity of the city. If the gates are broken down and there's nobody hanging out there, it means the city has nothing to offer. There's no good things there. And Nehemiah says, you see our trouble. We're shamed. We're disgraced. We have no economy. We have no new good ideas coming out of here. We're not dreaming about the next best thing. There's no planning. There's no prosperity. There's no business. There's no purpose. And yet we are God's favored people. It's a problem. Our gates are hanging by the hinges in chars. And yet we are God's favored people. This is inconsistent. We have the promises of God. We are to be a light to the Gentiles. And what we've got to understand in all of this, all this brokenness and the gates being broken and Nehemiah wanting to rebuild these walls and what he's communicating to these people and what they would have heard him say is this, this is not just about bricks and mortar. If it was about bricks and mortar, the book of Nehemiah would have ended in chapter 6 when the walls were built. Didn't. It's not what it's about. It's about regaining ground that the kingdom had lost for the glory of God. And so he proposes a remedy. And Nehemiah's remedy is in the form of an invitation. Come. Come and build with me. Let's do this together. Let us restore the walls. Let us rebuild and hang the gates. Let us return honor and safety and industry and glory to the Lord. Come, build with me. And he presents the reason. So that we will no longer be in derision, meaning shame or disgrace. So he poses the problem. You see the trouble. He proposes the remedy. Come build with me. And the reason, so that we will no longer be in shame. And the evidence, look what God's been doing in my life. I don't know what that looks like. He could have walked him through his whole life. I was a servant kid playing around with lizards in the courtyard. Some guy asked me to do this. Next thing I know, uh, next thing I know, I'm the cupbearer to the king. I ask him this, and then he responds. Look at the letters he gave me. Look at the timbers on the carts that we brought in here. Look at what God has been doing. He provides them 
evidence. He encourages the people with the ways that God has already sovereignly been at work. And then look at the people's response. The end of verse 18. Let us rise up and build. And so they strengthened their hand for the good work. Now remember, when we see progress, we will, see, we will face opposition. Verse 19. But when Sanballat the Hornite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, What is this thing that you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? I guess they didn't know Nehemiah had letters in their pocket, his pocket from the king. I found it interesting that these age-old arguments don't really change. When all the world is shutting down and people are saying, hey, we need to have church, what's the response? Are you rebelling against the king? They don't change. They just change time periods. Sanballat and Tobiah are threatened politically. Uh, Another historian outside of the Bible at this time records that Sanballat was the governor of the area of Samaria. We know that both Tobiah and Sanballat are, are attached and have Jewish roots Tobiah is actually a Israel, a Jewish name, which means God will provide. It's interesting. And so while it appears that they both have Jewish roots, they are seeking their own agenda, and this puts them at odds with God's kingdom. They have no place for anyone who will support and seek the welfare of God's people. Hear me. They had the same spiritual roots as Nehemiah. But because they were pushing their own political agenda, this puts them at odds with God's kingdom. Nehemiah is on God's work, and yet they want to exalt a person who, remember, Nehemiah several chapters ago said, help me before this man. Remember that? Referring to the king. And now, Sandbag and Toby want to say, hey, are you rebelling against the king? Look at the content of what they are saying here. They are insinuating that pursuing the kingdom of God is rebelling against the reigning powers on earth. For a long time, Christians in the United States have lived in a culture, at least on the surface, that valued what Christian virtue, if not Christianity, had done for our country. Even if you weren't a Christian, you would see the value of how the virtues have helped us become what we were as a country. There seemed to be, again, at least on the surface, 
a genuine respect for that. However, more and more, we are living in a culture that will interpret faithfulness to God and Christ as rebellion against culture. That we, who follow Christ, will become enemies of those who don't. That our culture will interpret faithfulness to God and Christ as rebellion against virtue and as rebellion against the governing authorities. But Nehemiah answers boldly and forthrightly, as should we. And here's how he answers. Verse 20, Then I replied to them, The God of heaven will make us prosper. That word prosper is the same word that's used in Psalms chapter 1, verse 3. That the man who meditates on the law of the Lord will prosper. And he uses this same language. And he said, "Uh, Say what you will. The God of heaven will make us prosper. And we, his servants, will arise and build. Sorry about your luck. We have one king. His name is Yahweh. And we serve him, not you. We said it this morning together, brothers. We have one, we have one king. His name is Christ. We have one sovereign. Christ our King, and we His servants will arise and build. And then He says this to these two guys, but you have no portion or right or claim on Jerusalem. In other words, if you don't join us, you have no inheritance. Nehemiah was fervent about two things, and we should see this very clearly, God's kingdom and God's promises. He's not moving on either one. This is what God's going to do, and this is what he promises those who will follow him. He is fervent about two things. So should we. Let's think about how this applies to us. My church family... It's of no secret the condition of our country and our culture. More than that, the condition of the global church. I'm going to speak generally, church global. The church has followed the world around like some insecure freshman on the heels of a senior, godless jock who uses everyone for his own promotion and pleasure. True? The church has followed the world around. We watch the world make movies, and then we want to make movies just like them. The world writes songs, and we want to write songs just like them. They want to run businesses, and we want to run our churches just like them. We are in the condition we are in because we have been too long passive. We have been too comfortable and too long and too lax in kingdom building. 
That's, and now that invades not just what's out there, but in here. Yeah? We have been too comfortable with the sad state of God's kingdom as long as we were comfortable sitting in our own paneled houses. As long as everything's okay in here, as long as I can get to the end of my 70 and still have peace, true, we've been too comfortable that God's kingdom is in shambles. And we're okay as long as we're okay. I don't have to go on and on about this. You, you see the trouble we're in. True? And it hasn't come overnight. And so I say, Vine and Branch, with Nehemiah, Come. Let us build. You may say, well, what are we building? It's on the sign. What are we getting after? What are we doing? If you've got notes, flip them back over to the front. Look at the upper right-hand corner. What's the third of our core values? Say it out loud. Vine and Branch Church, what are we building? Vine and Branch Church, what are we building? Under the supremacy of Christ and the authority of His Word, we are to be a group of people that when we touch stuff, it's redeemed. Our spiritual preparations should turn into tangible realities. <laughs> you guys getting fired up a little bit? Under the supremacy of Christ, core value one. On the authority of his word, core value two. We are to be a redemptive family force. A community that redeems everything that it touches. Is this either going to be a number on our list that looks cute? Or is it going to be who we are? Redemptive community. What does that mean? It means we live for the glory of Christ under the guidance of His Word. Does it mean doing what we've done? Oh, yes, and more. Yes, by exalting Christ and teaching the Bible and raising families and strengthening single men and women, young and old. It means to continue to be intentional about having one another over and speaking truth and adhering to truth and, and, and being together and enjoying one another. It means all those things. But it also means more. I, I can't tell you the excitement that I'm feeling right now. 
the conversations that we've been having as a leadership team that are happening in families, that are happening with individuals, that are happening among the men and women of our church in marriages. It means building family ministry teams. It means launching people into redemptive businesses. It means helping one another create these. We got so many entrepreneurs in this room that we need to stop thinking about how to build our paneled houses and how do we build the kingdom. It means putting people into community homes, helping some of our young families. If we're saying, hey, young families, have kids, raise them up in Christ. Brothers and sisters of my generation in our 50s or older, do you remember what it was like to have little kids and try to get into an apartment? Hey, if we want to say, hey, have babies, flourish, disciple them, then let's help them get into houses. Developing apprenticeships for our youth so that we can help them and help them gain skills so that they can be redemptive forces in our community. That we're writing books. Easy, mom. We're presenting workshops. We're intentionally sharing our resources, one another. We're helping those in need. We're doing justice to the poor. This is the rest of the book of Nehemiah, church. That's what we've been called to do. That's redemptive community. Doesn't just mean when somebody's sick, we send them a meal. Which we've kind of relegated it to. And that's a great start. But man, so much more than that, yeah? Remember, when we see progress, we can expect opposition. But more than that, remember this. This is God's work. And what he starts, he finishes. And on August 9th, in 2009, when five families met in a musty church at the bottom of Bear Creek Church Road, God pushed a benevolent snowball down a hill. And we're gaining momentum and size, church. Jerusalem is a city that sits on a plateau. They were meant to be an example of God's goodness, an example to the world of God's glory. And then 500 years later, after Nehemiah, Jesus says this, speaking to his followers. Matthew 5, verse 16. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In this same way. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Supremacy of Christ, authority of His Word, redemptive community, light on the hill, not for us, O Lord, not for us but for your glory. And we want to get more people to say your glory, Lord, 
more people in his kingdom. Okay, so I want you to stand up with me. At the bottom of your sheet is a short responsive reading. It says leader, and then it says church. I do the leader part, you do the church part. We're going to do this twice with greater enthusiasm, okay? Come, let us build. Let us rise up and build. We will strengthen our hands for this good work. Vine and Branch Church, come. Let us build. Let us rise up and build. We will strengthen our hands for this good work. O Father in heaven, strengthen us. May this be so. Increase our holy imaginations for your kingdom work. Loosen our grip on our paneled houses for your glorious throne. Inspire us to live wholly and absolutely for you. We have all either been at the alternative or we've seen it close up. It holds nothing for us. You are everything to us. We pledge ourselves and the work of our hands for your good work, for your glory, King Jesus, and our joy. Help us by your spirit. Amen.